Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. The Gospel of Matthew. We started this uh, 14 weeks ago, and we're almost done. Uh, in October, we're really going to focus on just the Great Commission, and we're going to expand from there because we really feel like discipleship is our way forward. It's what we've done in the past, but we really feel God is calling us to continue down that path of, of being discipled and making disciples. And so we want to spend a lot of time there. But for now, I just want to go back to something that we said right in the beginning. The Gospel of Matthew is the good news. So this is good news. And when you get into the Gospels, when you get into the Word of God, right, when you're reading this book, sometimes you ever find yourself tempted, you know, you're reading through there and you're like, oh yeah, this doesn't really apply, or I don't know if this really does anything for me. (laughs) You ever have that feeling? Don't feel bad. I do. I know what it's like to be in the West and somehow feel like the gospel is all about me. But then you have that revelation that it's actually all about him, and this is the actual words of God himself. Right? And this is, this book, they've tried to, the enemy has tried to stamp this thing out, the people who follow the way, he has tried for thousands of years and failed. In the harshest circumstances, they just keep sprouting up. Right? And God just keeps moving, and it's amazing. But this is good news. So the message in here is good news, and I think sometimes we complicate it. Pastor Chris did a great job talking about that last week, even talking about how we sometimes look for that, just that feeling of conviction. But I want us to, to, to rediscover the excitement of just getting into the simplicity of the word for what it is and how it applies to our life, and it is the good news, and that's important. So this week we're going to pick up where, where Chris left off, Matthew 19, just at the last little portion, we're going to go into Matthew 20 and kind of finish in Matthew 22, unless I remember out of time. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I won't repeat, just for a quick review, though, of what he was doing, because it plays into the first parable that we're going to read in Matthew 20. Um, but Chris talked about the rich young ruler, right? And he did all these good works, but he hadn't addressed that inward part. There was an idol in his heart. Loved what he he taught us last week. If you missed it, go back and watch it. Uh, You won't regret it. Um, But we're going to pick up there. So Jesus' answer to the question of the rich young ruler, how can I uh, inherit eternal life, was ultimately one thing. It was, come follow me. That was the answer. Now you'd say, well, no, 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 no. It wasn't the answer. He told him to sell everything he owned and give it to the poor. No, it was actually simple. It was, come, follow me. It was the last words. Jesus just recognized you can't follow two people at the same time. Right? So I'm going to go back to this. Uh, we've, I've done this example here before, but it's important now as we go forward because this message that we're going to talk about here, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This theme of what it really means to follow God and how you can't follow the world and follow yourself and follow God is a central theme to Scripture and the Gospels. If you look at like all, like all of Jesus' parables, the vast majority of them are spent not trying to just simply win the lost into Christianity. Actually, the vast majority are to help those who say they believe understand what it actually means to be a follower of the way. And that's where he spends a lot of his time, trying to help define that, because he knew the, the trap we'd fall into and that we'd be trying to serve two things. So just for sake of memory, some of you will remember me doing this before, this is the problem with trying to go in two directions at the same time, right? And I think this is actually a, a big part of why many of us uh, struggle with undue amounts of overwhelm and stress and anxiety in our lives and don't feel his peace walking with us. And it's because of this. 
Suppose I tried to walk in two directions. You following me? In the beginning, it's not so hard. Look a little weird, but it's not so hard, right? Keep going. I can do it. I'm not actually going anywhere, though. You notice that? Like right now, I'm actually in the same spot, but you can see the further I go, the harder it gets. You're wondering, how far can he go, right? <laughs> well, now I'm kind of wondering the same thing. How, how low can he go? No, the point is, ow, I can't go lower than that. Point is, you can, first off, I'm not going anywhere as I try to go in two directions at the same time. But if I keep doing it, eventually it actually leads to pain in my life. And if I kept going, I'd be injured. I'd probably be laying on the ground for the rest of this message. Point taken, you cannot serve two masters. You can't. No one can. That's very, very important. That was, was Jesus' point to the rich young ruler. He gave him steps that addressed the other master that he was serving. But the point is you can't serve two masters. That's central. So the disciples are hearing this, understanding it, seeing the impossibility of it. What is impossible to man is possible to God. Great. Now Peter's going to go on, though, and start asking a question because he's looking at this. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm weighing this out here. I can see, all right, you can only serve one master. Well, we've given up everything to follow you. Right? Peter says, see, we've left everything and followed you. When, like, what then will we have? So Peter recognizes they've given up everything. He wants to know. So, uh, you know, maybe he was a little sheepish in this. Knowing Peter, he probably wasn't sheepish. Uh, he was pretty bold in his assertions and questions and declarations. And he says, what will we get? What reward do we have? What is the reward from us for those who have given up everything to follow? That's a great question. And here we go. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That's a pretty good reward, is it not? Is it not? Think about that. Whatever you give up here in this world, the worldly stuff, you're going to receive a hundred times that plus eternal life. So that's Jesus' answer to, you know, what are we going to receive? You receive a lot. It's a whole lot. We get a lot more in return than what we actually gave up. Yes, following Jesus will cost us everything, uh, but we get far more in return than what we give, right? Think about this. What does he promise us in this life? Well, second life, we get salvation, eternal life, but we get his Holy Spirit ever-present, we get the possibility, anyways, of, of experiencing peace that passes understanding. He says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. How many of us are plagued by abandonment or rejection or loneliness? And he says, I will be with you. Right? We're all driven by this desire to know and be known, and yet he sees us perfectly. He knows us. We're laid bare before him. It's pretty wonderful what we get. Freedom from sin, empowerment, purpose in this world, and much more. But then he warns his disciples... And he says this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And he says this twice. So the first time he says it, he's referring back to uh, verse 30 in there. Oh, no, not verse 30. But he's referring earlier to the, uh, uh, the rich young ruler, right? Because think about this. How do we picture things? We look at talent. So clearly the guy speaking, me, right now, this is a human way of looking at it. We often fall into. I'm the one speaking. I'm speaking out of the word. Clearly, my reward's going to be bigger than the ones listening. Not so according to Scripture. 
You can actually tell very little about rewards from just looking on the outside because you don't know why I'm doing it. Plus, you could be being equally faithful in whatever God is asking you to do, in which case we might have the same reward, or you might be being even more faithful with what God's given you, even though it's an entirely different role. You can't see it, and that's what he's getting at. First will be last, last will be first. He's looking at the heart. He was saying, I'm looking at the heart. All those good things he was doing, that's not what I'm looking for. Right? So it's going to be a mystery when we get into heaven. There's a mystery, and we won't all, we'll, I think often we'll be surprised by what we see. All right, so the next parable, though, now we go into Matthew 20, and now Jesus is going to go into a parable. I love it. You know, why do you, sp- why do you speak in parables, right? And they're, they're confused. Why he always has to use stories? But he was very illustrative with his stories, and they had a point. And so now he's going to take what Peter said. Peter's asked about, we've given up everything. What reward do we get? And now Jesus is going to go into a story that's going to teach them a lesson. And here we have the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So, what does the vineyard represent? There's lots of different things that you can see, but basically if you look at the Old Testament, the vineyard is a common picture. So remember this was written to Jews of the day. The disciples would have understood as soon as Jesus gave a picture or a parable concerning a vineyard, they would have assumed he was talking about the people of Israel, right? The, the people of Israel, because that's often how they were referred to in Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, and in multiple places like that, right? So what Jesus is going to say then, he's talking about these land, this landowner that's going to go out and find workers that are waiting for work. So that's what would happen. You're, you'd have these vineyards and grapes are coming in and you have a limited amount of time. I forget exactly what happens, but you have a limited amount of time to take in the harvest before the grapes spoil, Right? So you send out workers into the fields. They've got to pull in the grapes so that they don't spoil. You've got to get them at the right time. And so that's the picture here is this landowner of the vineyard is sending out workers into this field to harvest the grapes. Sounds very familiar to the harvest is great and the workers are few, doesn't it? Very, very similar. Yeah, we're getting a lot of similar imagery here throughout the Gospels that Jesus gives. You really start seeing his heart. Anyways, they would have understood that what he meant by that was Jesus is calling people to go out into, right, into the harvest and to begin harvesting people, right, to go out into the people of Israel. That's what they would have thought locally at that time. Later on, it was going to expand to the Gentiles as well. So that's how they would have seen it. And what I love here, yeah, so this was, it's consistent with what Jesus was already doing. So here's what we'll, we'll do. We'll pick up here in the story. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he's met them, they've negotiated a contract, they've agreed upon a contract, and now they're going to work. All right. He sent them into the harvest and going out about the third hour, so now they're in the vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So basically how it would have worked, you guys remember being in school, anyone? <laughs> A few people? Remember the hideous, you remember when there was teams and you get captains of the teams and they pick the teams? Oh, the dread of my life, right? <laughs> no one, who wants to be last? That's the worst position. Anyways, like it feels like the worst position. Anyways, that's basically what he's talking about is happening here. So you have these workers that are all waiting and you can't hire everyone. So he's coming out and he's getting the, the workers that probably look the best in the beginning. And then each time he's going to come out, he's going to grab, well, a little bit more of the riffraff. <laughs> They're still waiting to work, but maybe he, they didn't get picked in the first round. 
right? They didn't get picked in that first round, but that's what he's doing here. Third hour, comes out, grabs more, and it says, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So we'll see that that pattern is repeating. And he said to them, why do you stand idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. So he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And here's where we get to the tension, right? The conflict in the story. Because so far, we have no conflict. This is going well. Owner owns a vineyard, grapes that need harvesting, don't want to spoil them, go out and hire the first group that look probably the most capable, come back, oh, we're still, we're not going to meet the deadline, go out and hire more, not going to meet the deadline, go out and hire more, not going to meet the deadline, and the last time again, not going to meet the deadline. So now, day is over, evening time, grapes have been harvested, I'm sure there's great amounts of wine that's going to come out of that, and now he's going to call the foreman, they're going to pay people. So starting with the people who were hired last, they've only been there a few hours, right? I mean, they haven't been there all day. They haven't been sweating all day. And look what happens. So those that were hired at about the 11th hour came. Each of them received the denarius. So just imagine being the guy that was hired first. You're over here, and you know you've worked your butt off all day. Am I allowed to say butt? Oh, whatever. You've worked your tail off all day. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you agreed for a denarius. You did. But now you see these guys that started way over here, and they got a denarius, you're thinking, okay, cha-ching, right? Because they're getting a denarius, they worked like a tenth of what I worked today, so probably, I don't know, like at five times what he promised, he's going to give me more than, than, uh, than what we agreed upon. I imagine that's what he was going through. So what happened? And I'm receiving, yeah, oh, did I go forward? Now, oh, sorry, I did. I went forward too fast. All right. Each one of them received a denarius. So yeah, I did. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, the last worker only worked one hour, and you made them equal to us who've been, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now again, picture this so you can kind of get into, like, we've got to use nowadays language, because I don't know how many of you have ever picked grapes all day in the scorching heat. To me, it sounds like a wonderful job, amen? Like, one for you, one for me, right? Who wouldn't want that? You'd probably have bad digestive things happening after all those grapes. But anyways, um, think about it this way. You work at a bank. You work at a bank and, and you have a full-time job there and you are, let's say, a loans officer. You manage some staff. So I don't actually know if that makes sense, but it's a big bank. So picture that's you. You're salaried. You've agreed to a salary. You like what you get paid. You work full-time. You're in charge of people and they, they have a high level of trust in you, right? They're trusting you with loans, with money. Okay, now... They need help on the administration side. They might hire a part-time receptionist or administrator or someone to, to, to handle the tilts, right? So you're following? You would assume, based on authority, responsibility, hours worked, that, of course, like, you're, you're going to make more than whatever this administrator is that's working part-time. Of course you're going to make more. Now imagine, though, at the end of the day or one week you found out that actually when it came down to payday, you know, you're looking at this receptionist who is clearly living the same, at the same level you are, and you find out you're all being paid the same amount. Would you feel gypped? Can you imagine that? You're thinking, I have to manage staff. I have all this extra responsibility. I'm here twice as long. How are you making the same amount of money as me? 
What's interesting about this is, I mean, it's human nature, but what's interesting about it is, remember I started this story just like this one did. You might have been perfectly fine with the wage that you were receiving. Right? Isn't this true of human beings that we struggle with contentment based on the success or failure of others? It shows how fickle we can be. Right? It's like we can be totally excited. Oh, Lord, what you're providing for me, I'm so grateful. And then we find out someone has gotten something more and we're grumbling and complaining on the inside because now what was perfect for us 10 minutes ago is no longer adequate. We somehow think we deserve more. Now, this is what's happening in the story, but does this actually mean God is unjust? Because if my boss did that, wouldn't I feel a little bit like he's not just, he's not fair? And yet we know What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And basically what he's saying here is, it depends on God. If if he chooses, right? You know, you've agreed here, you've agreed for this, and he's provided it, and you're thankful, and God now chooses to give extra grace or extra blessing to somebody else, That's his prerogative. And if our hearts are close to God's, we should actually be able to both be content with what we have, but also we should be able to rejoice in the success of others. Amen? You know, this mirrors the prodigal son, doesn't it? It totally mirrors the the prodigal son because that's exactly what happened there. The one son took everything, went away, spent it all foolishly, came back. Then they're slaughtering the fattened cow. The eldest son, who'd never done anything wrong, is indignant. He's upset. Why? He's always been able to have a fattened calf. He's always been able to have feasts. He's always been there and enjoyed the love of his father. But suddenly, the things that he's always had, the blessings of simply staying with his father, weren't enough because he saw the fortunes of another. And that's, that's a very human thing. Uh-oh. My per- this is the first uh, error I found in my PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm surprised there isn't more considering the rush the rush nature of the rest of it. Uh, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Christian, be content with what you have. For look at the greatest blessing that all of us have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you are a follower of the way, you already are the richest person on the planet, joined by many other brothers and sisters. You have the very Spirit of God with you, and He promises to not leave you nor forsake you. That is the richest blessing. You already have lots. Be content with what you have. All right. So, two things I want to take a look at here. Oh, no, now I will go back and read this. But He replied to one of them. This is now they're complaining. Remember they're grumbling? Look at Jesus' or the Master's reply. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? These are those words sometimes you just read over. Take that into your devotions and actually meditate on what that means. God who owns everything. Is he not allowed to do what he wants with what belongs to him? Or do we begrudge his generosity? Feel a chill in your spine with that one? Take that into your prayer time. I would encourage you on that. I love those kinds of questions. Do we begrudge his generosity? When he has already said, be content with what you have, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for me? All right, two things that I want you to notice from here. First one is God's character. He, he does not judge the way we judge. 
He is faithful to give us what he promised. We get far more than we deserve. He is fair. And we also learn from this passage, he delights in bestowing extra grace and blessings on those that everyone else deems unworthy. I love that about him. He's so, like, he just demonstrates this love for all the refuse of society, right? You go back earlier, and like, his ministry, lepers, unclean, unaccepted, rejected, tax collectors, sinners. He just, like, looks at the worst in society, and he's like, that's where I'm going to start right there. And I love that. And so we see that, and he says, am I not allowed to do what I want with what belongs to me? And we see his heart reflected in that. Jesus, friend of sinners. We've talked about that a few messages ago. But the question I want to ask us today that I'd love for you to bring into your own personal time, and I'll give you just moments to let it sink in. As follower of Jesus, are you content with the reward that is promised to you? Are you content with his spirit saying, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? Is salvation enough? I want you to think about when you first said yes to him. You remember that time? I remember it. I remember being in the car. I've shared this story. Lord, if you will love me the way I am, I will follow you anywhere. Is he still enough? Or somewhere along the line have other things. Do we feel maybe entitled? Maybe it's a better job that he owes you or freedoms and rights. That's a big thing that's going on right now. Does God owe that to us? It's my question for us this morning. All right, let's, uh, let's continue on because we've got to get through this message. I would have loved to give you more time to think about it now, but let those words sink in and I'd encourage you to bring it into your devotional time later. All right, now we go though to the end of this uh, passage and he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And here we get the second time he's saying it. So first we have him saying it about the rich young ruler and now we have Jesus. Now he's addressing Peter and the disciples and he says it again. And what I love is, you know, Jesus is always, he's always, you know, doing multiple things at the same time. And here he is both warning them, now the disciples, and others that would follow after. Think about the disciples. They're the first ones who've given up everything for Jesus. Right? They would be like the workers hired first. So he's speaking directly to them now. You are the guys that are hired first. Remember to be content with what I've promised you. And don't get upset. Don't be like Jonah who finally went and obeyed and then was upset when they repented, <laughs> right? And then he's sitting there upset. Why are you doing that, God? Why are you blessing them? And Jesus is warning them, don't be like Jonah. Don't be like these workers. And he's, you know, simply put, and this is what's important uh, to Jesus, and this is important for us, his metric for success, and this is really what he's getting at. It's not based on how long you've been following him, how hard you've been working, how talented you are, how gifted you are, how special you are, how much better you are than other people. His metric of success is very different. It's simple. Love God and obey God. Love and obedience. That's how we measure success. You know what I love about that? We can all do that if we say yes to him. We can all do that. You don't need power and prestige to do that. You just need a heart that's willing. And that's what he's going to be looking at. And that's why, in the end, the first will be last sometimes and the last will be first. You won't be able to see it by outward accolades. It's going to be something deeper that was going on. It's that inward yes that they love and obey God. That's ultimately what it came down to. So now we'll move forward in the story here. We've just got that parable, and I love it. So rich young ruler, Jesus corrects the ruler, talks about you can't follow two people at the same time. You've got to pick one. He goes away sad. Then the disciples, hey, we've given up everything. We're following you. What do we get? 
And he says, you're going to get a rich reward. But then he goes on to say, but now as you go and work, don't become like the rich young ruler and later on be indignant with what I'm asking of you. I'm going to give to whoever, whoever comes and follows me later as I choose. And now we're going to pick it up. They've just been given this lesson. Be content with what you have. I get it. I get it. Now we're on to whoever would be first must become your servant. And here we have Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He takes the 12 people aside, 12 uh, disciples aside. And this is the third time he foretells of his death. I love this. So he's just finished talking to them about how, what's the cost of following me? You have to give me everything. Give me everything. Follow me alone. And then what's, what's he doing? Modeling it. He's telling them, I too, to honor the Father, am going to give everything. And I'll do it for your sake. I love that. See, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. Deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Love that. So right after explaining how he will reward those who give up everything to follow him, he reminds them for the third time this is about to happen to him. He, too, will give up everything. Don't you love this? Praise alert. Jesus asks us for everything, but gave us everything first. Think about that. Let it sink in. Because you may be sitting here wondering, when we talk about following one, you can't follow two, you got to give up everything. It seems like the cost is beyond what we can pay. It is beyond what you can pay, sure. You need the help of the Holy Spirit. What is impossible with man is possible with God. But understand this, Christian, fellow brother and sister, that he first went and gave everything for us. And his everything, think about this, because you think we're, we're trading in our everything for his everything. His everything that he promises to us is far greater than what we give up here in this earth. We're getting far more than we deserve and way more than we could earn because it's not by works. We have to receive it. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Amen. So now we go forward. So he's just said, I'm, I'm giving up everything too. For the glory of the Father. He's doing it, and for all of us, he did it. Now we move forward to Matthew 20, 20 to 28, and we have mother, uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes and kneels before Jesus and says, you know, he says to her, what do you want? And she says to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. You know what's funny? He's just talked to them about rewards. He was just talking about, I expect you just to love and obey, just do your job faithfully, that's it. I'll worry about rewards. Don't, don't let discontentment grow in your heart and don't be worried about what other people get. <laughs> and we're like, verses later, and what are they worried about? Who's going to sit where and who's going to get the biggest reward? You know what I love about this? It's so human and it's so me and you. It's exactly what we do with God, right? He gives us a message and we're like, yeah, I totally agree. But then our lives totally don't reflect what we said we agreed to. And uh, that's true of the disciples, too. And I love that because right after this, you know, the disciples are indignant. They're, they're frustrated because they see what's just happened. And now they're arguing amongst themselves. And they're arguing amongst themselves who's going to be greatest. And Jesus calls them and says, look what he says. You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you. You want to you be first? You want to be the leader, the big leader? You want to be someone who's important in the kingdom of heaven? You want to make a difference? Look what Jesus says. And he says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Wow. 
That's greatness in his, in his kingdom. You want to be great? We think earthly, you've got to build up an empire. You've got to get position, power, authority, prestige, right? Everyone's got to see you. And Jesus says, no, that's not at all how the kingdom works. You want to be great? You lay yourself down as a slave. You love God. You obey him. You love people. You serve them. You put yourself below others. That's greatness in the kingdom. It's the upside-down kingdom that we've talked about. Chris talked about it last week, right? I love that. That's how we are truly rich. We want to truly be rich? Give it all away. Give everything away to Jesus, and you'll find true riches in heaven. So, personal reflection question again. Follower of Jesus, can you see your love for God and people in the way that you serve others? What's your heart motivation? Is it prestige? Is it position? Right? Do you look at those who have maybe a higher position, earthly speaking, in the church or something like that, or somewhere maybe at your workplace, and you're envious because you want that, because you want what, what's entailed with that? Or are you just willing to serve wherever you go? Just a question for us to be meditating on and to think about. Because remember, we are to model who? Jesus. Jesus. Amen. We're to model Jesus, and he modeled, you want to be great, you become a slave to all. And I love that. Now, obviously, I just want to be a quick, quick thing here. We can start getting into this, you know, mentality of them. We need to give everything away. Everyone needs to own nothing, and you've got to live in poverty. I'm not saying that. We should not, we don't have to apologize for being born in the West, where all of us are wealthy, very rich and wealthy compared to the rest of the world. You don't have to apologize for, for being born here. You didn't choose that. Jesus did. You don't have to apologize for the position you have or for the finances you have. You may have been given wealth and you may have worked for it. You don't need to apologize for that. I'm not talking about, about apologizing for where we are in life for the things that we enjoy. But I am asking, does your life and your position and your possessions, do they reflect your love for God and your love for people? And is it shown in the way you serve? Because that leads to our next point that Jesus gets to in the story as we're working through Matthew 20 and now into 21, Jesus does expect this fruit in our lives. He keeps talking about it in the parables over and over again, saying, I expect to see this when I come there. Now, in the Matthew account, the, uh, it's not in chronological order, so most scholars think actually the Mark account has it chronologically accurate because we have the story of the fig tree followed by the cleansing of the temple. Matthew's not doing everything chronologically, but he's listing things that happen kind of in their somewhat order, right? So I hope you can follow that. You'll notice I'm starting in verse 19, and then I'm going to flip to verses 12 and 13. Um, but the chronological order, how they believe it happened, would have been the fig tree first. So Jesus expects fruit in our lives, and to show this again, because he keeps showing them. Now, you should know, this is now Matthew 21. It's Sunday. This is the final week of him on the earth. You can just imagine. Think about what he's going through, knowing what's going to come, right? Now he's making his triumphant entry into Jerusalem as Messiah. He's exercising, he's demonstrating to all that although he's coming to, to become a slave, he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. He's making a statement in the way he comes into Jerusalem, coming on the donkey, right, that he has authority. Jesus is the Messiah. He has authority. He's coming in, right? And you can imagine the pressure he's feeling and what's going on inside. And now they get to this fig tree. <laughs> I like the fig tree because I just love the disciples' response to everything. But here we get to this fig tree and how the fig trees kind of worked back then is the, the leaves and the figs began kind of growing at the same time. They would have been greenish but not ripe to eat. So he's coming here and there's leaves there but not fruit. 
and look at Jesus' response. It's very interesting. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again, and the figs withered, or the fig tree withered at once. Now, this is significant, again, because it's a picture of what Jesus was actually expecting to see in the leaders of Israel at the time. Because he came, right? They were the fig tree. They were the leaders of Israel, his shepherds. And he expected them to bear fruit. But when he came to see the fruit that they were bearing, he found that none was there. And that's what he was angry about. And we see that now as we go forward, even in Matthew uh, 21, 12, and 13, he enters the temple and he's driving people out. And he's saying, my, my house, the temple, it, will, it shall not, you know, it shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. He didn't just want, you know, the temple to exist for the sake of temple, people going through the motions and people just coming there. He's saying, I want your hearts. I want the hearts of my people. And that's what he's upset about. Again, he's expecting fruit. And what kind of fruit is he looking for? It's very clear. Love and obedience to God and loving and serving people. When you look through all of his parables, you're going to find a common theme as he's helping people understand what it means to actually follow him. Remember, salvation is a gift. You have to receive it, not earn it. You cannot earn it. But once you receive it from him, part of receiving the gift of salvation is also agreeing that he is now your Lord, which means you're going to follow him with the rest of your life. That's a very important distinction we need to understand. And that's what we see in Matthew 21. You can just imagine as Jesus is clearing the temple, I would have loved to see that, the look on his face. Terrifying, actually, a little bit. But, but the pressure he's feeling at the same time, I think this would have been Monday or Tuesday. I think that would have been Tuesday. And he's clearing the temple. We're days away now from him being arrested and being crucified and from him being raised back to, to life. And now we get into Matthew 22, and this is where I... I want to finish today. Parable of the wedding feast. So we see he's defining, in most of his parables, he's defining to those that already believe, he's defining what it means to follow me. And he's encouraging them. In Matthew 21, there's a great one there too about obedience. He talks about the two sons called him to go to the field. One said yes, didn't go, and the other was hesitant, but then in the end went and worked in the field. And which one actually followed him? The one who obeyed. And Jesus is making that point again. That's Matthew 21. In, uh, right at the end of that last parable here, the parable of the two sons, 28. Now we're in Matthew 22. And here we have this wedding feast. And, and I'll just read it to you. And it says, And again, Jesus spoke to them in a parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. So now you have servants. These are already people, those who are invited. Those are believers of the, of the time. That's what he's going. And now he's calling them to a feast the ones who have answered that call. And he calls them and look at their response. See, I have prepared, you know, it's for his son. It's a wedding feast for his son. And he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves and have been slaughtered. And everything is ready. Just come to the wedding feast. But look at the response of those that were invited. They paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. What just happened here? These are people that said yes to him, and when he went to invite them to the wedding feast, they were busy doing their own things. You see that? One to his farm, one to his busy, or to his business. They were busy living their own lives. It says the king was angry at them, and he sent his troops and destroyed the murderers and burned the city. But then we move on to this next part here. 
The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were unworthy. That should break our hearts. And it should also cause us to go and examine our hearts. But look what he says here next. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. He's now including, he's saying, just go find anybody. They're all welcome here. They're all welcome here. And look what he says. The servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both what? Bad and good. We're thinking we're not, we're not worthy of this. You're right, you're not. But he's not looking for worthy people. He's looking for people that are willing. Right? Bad and good. He's not looking for super talented, intellectual. He's looking for all who are ready to say yes to him. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And that is, again, the same picture we've been talking about all along here. And so today I want to close on this, this uh, last verse here, Revelations 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is written to the church, not to unbelievers, but to the church. This has been an age-old problem. We say yes to him, but very quickly get tied up in our own civilian affairs and forget who we said yes to. And today he's encouraging us that he stands at our door and knocks. And anyone who's willing to say yes to him, to give him their everything, to not hold back. Look at the, look at the picture here. He wants to come in and eat with us and he with me. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit would come, that he would bring to remembrance all that he's taught. And then he went on to say in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be dismayed. Maybe today you are needing that peace. You need, you need that touch from God. You need his spirit inside. You need that direction for what you're supposed to do and whatever it is you're facing. You need that encouragement to keep going. Bow your heads with me today. Lord, we look at the different parables and what we can learn from there. And Lord, we don't want to be those that just let it come in one ear and go out the other. But Lord, I ask today, we ask you together that you would use your word to examine our own hearts. We want to be found faithful when you search the earth looking for the faithful ones. Lord, we want our yes to be more than words. We want our yes to be lined up with the actions and attitudes of our life. And so today, Lord, as we hear that knock on the door of our heart, we are choosing to give you our everything as we open the door and say, please, would you come in and eat with us? We thank you for what you're going to do. Let's worship together. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.